for November 20th, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 490. Urban Surfer Hipster Bro Dragon Ball Z Long Hair Fusion Dance. This is the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together and talking over what interests us. This week, it's Justice League. Though interests might be kind of a uh, generous description. It it bemuses us um, to no end. Uh, And we are going to take our bemusement and spin it into a podcast that uh, spoils Justice League, though you don't don't care about that, I promise. Um, so uh, I'm your host, Matt Rather. I am talking with my uh, my own league, uh, my Overthinking It league, which includes Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello. Hello, Matt. And Mr. Mark Lee. Hello. Hello, Matthew. Justice League is the best film in the Michael Bay Transformers series. <laughs> <laughs> it focuses on... A magical cube, right? (laughs) It has, like, snake things uh, that come out of the ground, and um, it has, uh, you know, but but, uh, it has all, like, a a scary voice, a villain, scary silver villain in voiceover with lips that move in a kind of uncanny way. It has some excellent CGI and some pretty execrable CGI. It is is the best. It has an upskirt shot. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, sort of. I guess you you see a little cheek there uh, when Wonder Woman is jumping uh, jumping up onto something. But uh, but oh, I, good lord, I, I, <laughs> it is a film that is uh, like Transformers. It is a film that is confused about whether it is about squares or organic shapes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, like a lot of action films, it traffics in. Two forms of bombastic dialogue, which are all which are universally tanked, uh, except in two cases. Um, one is the uh, the overheated sentimental dialogue, which everyone fails at. Uh, you know, like uh, when the Flash says the word botched and it just sticks out like a sore thumb in the in the script because the Flash would not, Barry Allen would not say the word botched in casual conversation. Um, but one person lands it and that is uh, Jeremy Irons doing yeoman's work here as Alfred when he says, no, Mr. Wayne, it's a team. Uh, the other kind is the uh, the um, machismo jocular bombast. Everyone fails at it except for Jason Momoa doing yes. yeoman's work uh, <laughs> as Arthur Curry, a.k.a. Aquaman. Now, Pete, you described this film as the best Jason Momoa Justice League movie that <laughs> the, of all possible worlds. Uh, I mean, I, I tend to agree. I I feel like he brought he brought a kind of spirit that was sorely lacking from the other actors, including people like Gal Gadot, who we have loved in other uh, like in Marvel, in uh, Wonder Woman, in other uh, DC movies that um, that just sort of spirit, that sort of devil may care attitude, you know, the sense that this is actually all supposed to be a good time. Let us now praise famous Momoa's Pete. (laughs) What did you think of Aquaman? <laughs> I mean, I've described this movie to people as as an entertainment Justice League as a five, as a superhero entertainment, it's a seven. As an Aquaman entertainment, it's an eleven and a half. <laughs> it is more than we could ever hope to get out of Aquaman. It is uh the the biggest thorn in the now thorn porcupine side of uh of sexiest man alive. <laughs> Uh, uh, um, Blake Sheldon. Uh, which, uh, he's been facing a lot of heat because it has been remarked on many sides that Blake Sheldon does not really make that credible a case for universally being the sexiest man alive. Uh, Jason Momoa as Aquaman uh, throws down the gauntlet and Blake Sheldon would, uh, I don't think he would be worthy of picking it up, although I'm crossing my DC and Marvel universes. No, the thing about Aquaman in this movie is that I feel like he seems really engaged with what his character is doing. <laughs> like the like the performance 
performance is very engaged with the values of the character, what the character cares about, and particularly what the character cares about with regards to other people. And, and not just not just the people that they're talking to at the moment, but like other people kind of in general, which are both a blessing and a curse in Justice League, I think. They are very present in the first act of the movie, and then they sort of linger as, as if they were party guests that were expected to leave when the cake candles were lit uh, through the end of the movie where they play a perfunctory and tiresome role. But this is a movie that lives and dies with the bystanders. And the part of the big part of the reason why it does that, I think is because Jason Momoa invests his care for the bystanders with such power and, and sincerity and uh, also kind of undercuts the tone and, and the sort of uh, absurdity of the superhero genre in kind of a new way with the not even quite surfer bro. It's like a reimagining of the urban hipster surfer bro as sort of a Dragon Ball Z fusion dance, uh, like a neo long haired man bun machismo notion. Uh, I, I just really think that Jason Momoa does a great job in this movie, and I think that you would not expect to be leaving this saying, well, let's order the Justice League in order of coolness. Number one is Aquaman. (laughs) 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 Number two is clearly Wonder Woman, (laughs) although she kind of had a rough day. Number three could be like three through five are pretty close. And absolutely dead last is Batman, <laughs> the least cool member of the Justice League. Uh, and, and that is not how you would expect this one to work out, and yet it is how it does. So so there you go. Yeah, I mean, Batman uh, was an interesting characterization, right? Like, putting him as, whereas everyone else was sort of in their prime, like, you know, 30 plus or minus, right? Like, uh, I should say probably like 27 plus or minus. Um, Batman was like solidly middle age, you know? Uh, Affleck was done up in, like, gray, gray hair, gray beard, like the whole, uh, the whole thing gray. And, um, you know, he was, he was seeming, uh, seeming a little, a little worse for wear, right? Like, not only with his bruises and stuff, um, not only, right, like, uh, in that scene when he says to, to Wonder Woman, like, I can barely do it now. Uh, she says, you won't be able to do this forever. He says, I can barely do it now. Um, but just his whole, his whole, uh, attitude was a little, like, a little sick of these kids, even though Diana was the one who said, children, I, I work with children. And I suppose from her point of view, her, her, you know, millennia old point of view, I suppose they are children, right? I think the trick with Batman, because the way you've described it isn't unsalvageable. Like a Batman who's barely hanging on and just manages to be the reluctant manager of the Justice League, the the herder of cats that manages to get them together, the Walter Matthau to their Bad News Bears. That Batman I can get behind. That's like Batman Beyond Batman. I, I like that kind of Batman. The, the problem is that Batman's main purpose to exist in this movie is to motivate the Justice League to get together and to go about the managerial work of, of assigning them to their jobs, and he just seems so profoundly disinterested in this project. Like, like it's just like, like he's like, oh, I can't really deal with this. Uh, and he's not even saying it, but it's in, this, it's in the performance. There's this like world-weary Dark Knight Returns aspect to Batman in this movie, and yet Batman is, is there to force the characters to coexist as if he were a classic rock radio station during the first hour of Suicide Squad. Like, he is the binding force. He is the occasion. <laughs> For them to show up, uh, and uh, whereas in Suicide Squad they just dispensed with it almost entirely. Um, we should also I, add that it's a huge shift, uh, probably a welcome one, but a drastic change from what we saw in Batman versus Superman. Right? I mean, I, I, I equally hate to bring up that movie, but I must. I'm, I'm kind of glad to as well because that was movie was so terrible. Um, right. It was aggressively bad, right? And Batman's uh, Ben Affleck's Batman was. Uh, actually, in retrospect, perhaps one of the better things about it, right? But he was super angry and angsty and full of spite uh, and paranoia. Um, right. And that's something that we readily associate with Batman. And having taking him out of that familiar element, it, it feels a little off, for lack of a yeah. better word. He also doesn't feel like somebody who's been doing groundwork to get this accomplished for three movies, which he has been. He's, you know, he's he was in Justice League. He appears in the after credit sequence of Suicide Squad. He's been going around the world getting things done. 
And yet in Justice League, he seems to start from scratch. He, he knows where everybody is, and he's sort of ready to go that last mile. But, the, but perhaps because of where it starts or stops, there isn't this sense to this character that all of the things he's been doing to try to arrange this. He's no Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. Yeah, sure. Provi- yeah. He doesn't have, you know what it is? He doesn't have enough going on that we don't know about. That's the thing, is that if Batman is really the mastermind that's assembling all these people, there should be a sense that there are things that Batman knows about the world and about these people and about what's going on that that we don't get to be privy to. For example, Batman should probably know who the new gods of New Genesis and Apocalypse are at this point because he's been doing research on ancient art or what have you because he's the world's greatest detective. But we get the sense that Batman doesn't know or care who these people are. He, he also should, should probably know that Lex Luthor has escaped from prison. One would think. Right. Like, yeah. you'd think that that would like that would be a sort of thing that they pulled yeah. out, pulled out all the stops for. But they were like they were what evacuating or moving the prisoners in that final after credit scene. And it's uh, and uh, I mean, did he have him fooled all that time by just like b- not turning around to face the window? <laughs> Was that the master plan is like stare at the stare at the opposite wall? If we're also talking about failure of logic and reasoning in in characters who we expect to have more of that, how about when Superman comes back and everybody conveniently forgets to guard the box? But they just spend a ton of time <laughs> talking about how important it is, and like everybody's got their back turned. It's like, oh crap. I mean, that's not nearly as bad as after he actually takes the box, and so the bad guys are in possession of all three artifacts to end the world, and they choose that point to have a little intermezzo where everybody just checks in with their personal stuff before the like imminent destruction of the planet. It just seems like the situation should be a little more urgent if the bad guys are about ready to launch their doomsday device, but they're all sort of like, oh man, I gotta have some second thoughts about what's happening. Or, I mean, story- I'm really glad we found Superman. Storytelling why Cyborg is the great enabler of navel gazing because he's uh he can just kind of be hard at work on something like you know in his like background processing cycles or something like that right wasn't he like while they were all uh, bitching and moaning at each other wasn't he like turning around the hologram of the world in his in his little hands yeah uh, Yep. So totally, totally. Like that's you know that when when you have when you have cyborg, you know you can be as self indulgent as you want uh, in terms of you know in in terms of the story. I mean, can't I'm not do that, t- can you? <laughs> uh, apparently, apparently. Um, I like. Let's talk about this a little bit as an extension of this DC universe that they're building out, and that the 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 Snyderverse um in particular it seems to me like i i had um i had a uh pronounced emotional reaction to the first half hour of this movie i was yeah. very sad like everything that happened made me sad uh it was just bleak and unpleasant and not not nice not it was not there was not a call to adventure you know there wasn't like uh no one was asking me to come out to play right Right. they were like it was uh it was just a kind of pervading mood of hopelessness and then you know when you saw the bedraggled dog sitting you know in front of the sign that says i tried uh, in front of the poor homeless man sitting begging listlessly on the street, right? Like the bedraggled dog just tipped me over the edge. And I was like, <laughs> I was, you know, I just felt this, this level of, of unhappiness, of despair almost that was just like, ugh, you know, will, will, will no one save me? Um, you know, and that's, uh, I mean, I guess that's, uh, that's, you're supposed to like want Superman to come around, but I really didn't want Superman, uh, to come around. I wanted like Taika Waititi to come around or something like that. Right. (laughs) Like I wanted a, I wanted a more humane, um, directorial vision to, yeah. uh, uh, Taika Waititi, of course, being the recently celebrated director of Thor Ragnarok, yeah. as well as the director of adorable movies like Eagle versus Shark and such. 
Or, uh, or did he, was he in it? He might have been in that one. I think he oh, puts no, he himself in. It. I think he yeah. puts himself in all his movies, including yeah, Thor true. Ragnarok. Yeah, um, good point. The uh, you know, like I and that struck me as like a very you know. I, I went to a matinee, so it only cost eighteen bucks for a movie ticket. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, but, well, here, show of hands, who, when they bought their Justice League theater ticket, was the only person who had bought their Justice League theater ticket? My hand is up right now. Yep. I was the, the first and only person that bought a ticket, like, before, 10 minutes before showtime. You, well, Pete, you know, because I texted you a photograph of the little grid of seat selection <laughs> of uh, of me, like, in the front row, right behind, I like the, right behind the handicapped row, because there's a rail that you can put your feet up on, uh, so there is an accessible row that's at grade that's at ground level and then the first row behind that is really good and i got my prime seat in that uh in that row with my feet up on the rail center center screen and i had the whole thing to myself now it was like 10 30 a.m on a sunday so you you would have to be particularly devoted to see justice league under under those circumstances So for some perspective and diversity of experiences, I did go to a Friday night sold out screening of it with a raucous audience. So no, some folks did go to see it. Side note as well, this movie did not perform quite at expectations at the box office. Um, But going back to the broader thematic thing that we're talking about here, Matt, the sort of the despair humanity um, that uh, that you thought was so uh, such a bleak beginning of the movie. I actually appreciated it and was disappointed that it wasn't cashed cashed out more. Uh, In particular, this notion that this world we see without Superman is kind of like the United States without Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, like, like, like this is Trump's America. And because our great symbol of beacon of hope is gone, then uh, the racist dude is being an asshole to Muslims. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and the people are mean and everywhere there is, you know, despair and the world is changing in ways that we can't understand. Um, but that isn't, that through line isn't carried uh, through to the end of the movie because what happens is Steppenwolf random God cause drops down from the sky and then threatens everybody. And then these boxes somehow have something to do with uh, the state of humanity and things like that. And they just have to go show up and like fight a bunch of bugs and pull the boxes apart. Not at all addressing these sort of uh, the interesting ideas that are brought up at the beginning around um, uh, the, the humanity themselves. And are they tearing themselves apart? And, why do they need symbols of hope and why do they need heroes and things like that? That to me was like the biggest disappointment of the movie. I feel like it addresses it, but it's tricky because it's a big level of abstraction removed away from the terms with which the conversation is initiated. Even two levels of abstraction moved away because the idea is, is that that Justice League, the events of the first act of Justice League prep us for a comparison between the events that are happening in the movie and then the events that are happening in real life. And then the main plot of the second and third acts of Justice League takes the events of real life, offers a new symbol for them taking place, and then engages with that symbol. But we're now really removed from the the vocabulary of the first part of the movie. And I think that's big part. I think this movie is like was like cobbled together and just barely stitched together from a whole bunch of different parts. And it like almost gets there in certain ways. It felt a lot like RAPD in that respect where it's like, I want to like pull the parts together and plug them into each other. So they work because right now they don't. This Um, is the podcast uh, that mentions RAPD the most (laughs) per minute on the internet. Rest in peace department starring Ryan Reynolds and Jeff Bridges. In case you didn't see it at the time, the most expensive (laughs) film ever shot in the city of boston <laughs> for some reason oh dear okay so you're talking about the boxes right pete yes like unpack those boxes first please okay well okay so there's two different there's two different schemes for unpacking. <laughs> one of them is to unpack what they are in the context of the comic books which is probably not worth it although i did mention that i did notice that in the credits there's a full screen dedicated to thanking jack kirby for developing the fourth world which is the range of dc stories that the justice league is starting to engage with is the fourth world new genesis and apocalypse and and this whole shebang which is sort of the dc counterpart to what i've referred to in our past 
podcast as Marvel cosmic in certain ways. And Jack Kirby is is a factor in all of this. And the story of the arc of Jack Kirby's career is important, very important to what's happening now in the culture, uh, in particular, the way that he was with Marvel and then he left Marvel. And there's this idea of the kind of what does the company own versus what does the individual own? Putting that all aside for a moment. The 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 evil in this movie is that the boxes are going to re- destroy the Earth and re- make it reborn. They're the Genesis machine from the second through fifth or so – if I guess the second through third nominally, but like the second through fourth or fifth Star Trek movies in that they're like a device that you put on a planet and it re-terraforms the planet, at least is the sense that we get from this movie. And so the question is – the Earth is rotten, and the reason it's rotten is that people are turning on each other. It's like Noah's Flood. It's Nimrod. It's all of the terrible human beings are – and not Nimrod, the compo character, the biblical figure. Human beings are being terrible to each other. The world is destroying itself. Hey, let's remake the world in a better image, and this better image happens to be a – a hellscape of caco demons <laughs> but but hey you know like it beats waiting in line at the dmv am i right <laughs> so, like, um so so that's that's sort of like the way the movie wants i think the movie, the movie wants to fit together is that it shows you things like police brutality racism homelessness economic despair professional despair work-life balance problems with being a woman in the workplace dealing with bereavement right all these sort of problems that are real world problems and then it says hey there's this option to remake the world in fire into a hellscape with caco demons, uh, which you know is a way. It's an option, um, and then the Justice League has to say what the great line that Ben Affleck says in this movie. And the reason that I don't want to say that Ben that his Batman portrayal is terrible so much as it is just misplaced and misconnected and kind of misguided is when he he talks about how he's like he doesn't need to understand the world; he just needs to save it. Well, that's the question: Why does this world need to not be remade into a caco demon hellscape? <laughs> and that's the question that the movie doesn't answer. Right. Because you, the, the surface level answer is, well, the Justice League get to be friends with each other and, and they become a microcosm for the macrocosm of all of humanity becoming friends with each other. Except that doesn't happen. The Justice League don't become friends with each other in this movie. They learn to work together, sort of. And that's yeah. not the vibe that yeah. they have at all. Which is fine because they're doing something else. You know, they're sort of brought together for a special occasion. They're dealing with the mystery of the death and rebirth of Superman. They're kind of trying to get along with each other to preserve the better good. But there's no reason given, I think, really to counteract the argument early in the movie that social upheaval has made Earth unstable to the point where a, a cataclysm that is human-created, not just God-created, but like human-created, might be justifiable to some people and that other people ought to go to great lengths to prevent it from happening. So, Because that's the question. Do you want if, – if you're talking about like, oh, you want to bring this – as if Barack Obama ever had this level of of effect on the world, right? I mean, yes, a lot of people liked him, and I think he made people feel a little bit more secure, and he was a little bit more trustworthy even to the people who didn't like him. The point, I don't think he was actually saving the world. <laughs> uh, you know, like, I don't think it, it goes that far. The the world is a big place. Uh, but it's like, you, this, this, this solution of, like, giving rebirth to, to white, chiseled dehydrated barack obama to go punch people by the vietnam memorial is like is like not this is not a good solution to this problem this is not a credible solution to this problem more importantly it's not a resonant solution to this problem there's nothing about the solution nothing about the way that the bringing back of superman is executed that leads me to believe that it serves as a serviceable counter argument to uh, hellscape and caco demons and hey at least there's still a dave and busters we can go to right like like there's like at least there's some people are happy like steppenwolf's having a blast but everybody else is having a bad day uh but everybody else is having a bad day anyway because as matt said it's horribly depressing so it's like like here's the thing they show you the little girl it's a little girl is really what it is and this is when i said that the, the movie lives and dies with the bystanders they show you the little girl at the beginning of the movie everybody knows what's supposed to happen to the little girl matt even already mentioned it mark what's supposed to happen to the little girl in this movie she's going to be in trouble and she's going to be saved by the heroes more specifically by superman yeah superman is going to come back from the dead to save this little girl that i mean the instant i see the little girl on the screen it's like okay this is the direction that this movie is going in superman's going to come back from the dead to save the little girl and this is going to be the sort of big symbol of how 
hey, you know, power can be used for the protection of the weak. It doesn't just have to be about oppression or exploitation. Hey, here's a new model for how we can relate to each other. Here's a new model for how we can organize society. Um, it, it's even um, they're even Kents. It's they're Russian Kents. They're like they have a pickup truck. They have a little house. She's female Clark Kent. She just doesn't have superpowers. And but you said so, the obvious. It's a real weird misdirect because Superman doesn't save the girl. It's the Flash, actually, right? Which doesn't make any sense because the Flash, because the other great line from Ben Affleck is when he, because and he, he's 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 trying, he really is trying. Is <laughs> Ben Affleck says to to Barry Allen because uh, it's a real person talking to a fictional character <laughs> apparently. Uh, just save one person, save one person, and the the implication the implication is that by saving one person, Mark, what's the implication? That you'll save more. Yes, Flash is going to save one person, and he's going to be—he's going to realize that by saving one person, that that's really satisfying, and he's going to go on from that and save many people, and so he creates an expectation of a trajectory, and so the Flash saves one person, and he saves many people, and then at the end of the movie, there's the big battle, and you could cash this out by having this Flash save the entire like apartment building, right? By not by carrying it, but by running through the hallways one yeah. by one, emptying mm. it out of people and like putting them on the top of the mountain outside the blast radius or whatever. Of course, this scene already happened in X-Men Days of Future Past. Uh, because that's what Quicksilver does in X-Men Days of Future Past when the X-Mansion is being destroyed. Uh, so maybe that's why they didn't do that. But like, you're exactly right. I felt like it should have been reversed, that it should have been Superman saving the little girl because power needs to realize that it serves the weak and vulnerable, not the powerful. And the Flash needs to save the whole town full of people because millennials need to recognize that they have a stake in society too, and that society, <laughs> right? right? Like they need to not only they need to they want jobs, they should get jobs, they should get important jobs that serve their talents, and then they should be recognized for their success by being able to achieve things and be appreciated, right? Like that's the Flash's arc. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of burnout millennial, not burnout, but I'm a millennial. I'm talented. I can't get the work I want to get. I'm trying really hard, and my dad's in prison, which is sort of a metaphor for like i have these structural disadvantages that people in previous generations wouldn't have had um and, but anyway that that's what i'm talking about when i'm talking about like like well the answer to the grimness like and that's not the only way it could have done but it seems like it was set up to do that and then it got switched well right so this this like i you know i'm not just kind of uh putting my head up my ass here by by saying this i at the at the beginning of the podcast i there's a confusion in this movie about whether it's about square shapes or whether it's about uh, organic shapes, right? Like the the tesseract or the cube or the the you know death thing or what? What are they called? The mother cubes? Um, yes. The unity. Ah, yes. Yes, unity um, is uh, they are square and they're kind of like fractally square. They're sort of cubes within cubes. And there's like, a, you know, a cube is a three dimensional shape and there's like uh, three cubes kind of going into each other. So they're kind of a hypercube like there's, you know, there's this sort of squareness to them. But everything that everything that happens right like in uh, as a result of of the the cube is like the uh, the the boiled cabbage leaf energy. Shield uh, with its sort of cabbage leaf veins um, that that you know emanating from the tower that that covers the um, the site of of the unity. Um, is it fun? Is it funny that when you said boiled cabbage leaf energy shield, I was like, which superhero movie is that from? Because I feel like it's from several. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, continue. The uh, right and the um, the other one is uh, the the tentacle. The the Transformers tentacles, um, the Cyber Tremors. Uh, though I suppose here they are like rock tremors, or I don't know, organic tremors. You know, uh, I don't know, something. Whatever, it's totally unexplained. Whatever it is, right? Exactly. That that sort of come come out of the thing that are a like a, a Stranger Things tentacle monster. Uh, you know, uh, aesthetic, right? And like, so the, the, what, and why, why this matters, like, why this stupid little, little pedantic point I'm making matters is because the movie is not clear about the nature of the threat, right? And, and if you're not clear about the nature of the threat, you don't know what's at stake. You know, is it a, is this a technocratic movie about putting a, um, 
you know, about like about management, right? About uh, putting together a kind of superior technology of human resources um, in, in the form of the team, and that they can get together over their they can get together despite their differences, and you know, defeat the kind of totalitarian uh, uh, thought technology of Ragnarok or whatever his name is. But the um, you know, okay. Regents Clearwater Revival. <laughs> I like. <laughs> I mean, I like. Ex- I like experimental experimental theater in Chicago, but um, <laughs> but the 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 point right like the the other thing is like is this a is this an organic movie right like is this a is this a cabbage leaf movie right where we are all connected to one another in the great boiled cabbage leaf of society, right? We are all wrapped in the great Pichana Gwumki. That's a deep cut for podcast fans. Um, in the, uh, you know, in, in the kind of the human, the human family and like what we need is sort of love and hope, right? It's, it's, it's both and neither. Um, and that's the problem. And it happens on all levels, not just the level of the, like the manifest plot, uh, but at the level of the kind of like the visual design of the movie as well. You know, you know what it reminds me of, Matt, is it reminds me of the the Emperor Diocletian. <laughs> oh, is, is this going to be another two-hour podcast? No, it just reminds me of, and I've been way into this medieval and, and late antiquity and Roman Empire stuff recently, so I apologize. But just the Emperor Diocletian was a strict disciplinarian, uh, and a, more like a strict authoritarian, who remade the economy and through association the military of the Roman Empire, and rarefied the relationship of the emperor with the people so that he became this sort of distant god figure, divided the whole place up into administrative districts, was like super bureaucratic about absolutely everything, including taxing all activities, but then at the end of his career wanted to retire to farm cabbages. And so that's an example of a person who's a square shape trying to become a cabbage shape. And you know what? It didn't work. He wasn't allowed to become a cabbage shape. He got he tried to retire for a little bit, but he called called back out of retirement, uh, and it didn't work out. So I guess the answer is you kind of have to be one or the other. <laughs> and history reminds him as one, as much as he wanted to to uh, be the other at some point. But but it's also about character design. Right, it's not just about that. It's about just are the visual in the, in the situation where these characters are so fantastical and so unlike what a person would be like in real life. There's no real pretension that this is going to be quote unquote realistic. The way that you design the visuals of the characters is going to fl- reflect what the movie is about and the themes of the movie. Right. And if you don't know whether you're the core of your visual vocabulary is is geometric shapes or organic squiggles. That's a big problem. Thor Ragnarok did not have this problem. It had a very clear idea of its visual style, which, by the way, was also, I think, inspired by Jack Kirby. But at any rate, sorry, Mark, you, you go ahead. Yeah, what we're talking about here is really the, the fundamental failure of this DC uh, cinematic universe, with the, I guess, the notable exception of Wonder Woman, to map out its relationship between heroes and humanity, right? This is yeah. everything that we're talking about here, right? The bystanders, like, it all comes down to the bystanders. Let's uh, turn our memories back to Man of Steel, right? The the uh, first superhero, Superman movie of this, uh, of this iteration of the DC universe, and roundly criticized for the massive wanton destruction of Metropolis that occurred uh, during the fight between Zod and Superman uh, that really went without comment in that movie. It was completely oblivious, to the fact that all these people were dying, and also that uh, you know uh, that, that Superman snaps Zod's neck at the end, and an uncharacteristic act of cruelty upon, upon Superman. Um, so bystanders don't matter; they're just cannon fodder in Man of Steel. Batman versus Superman overcorrects for that, and then like goes way out of its way to state that um, that this, this epic fight between the heroes and uh, Darkseid or whatever the blob awful villain of that movie was that all this is happening in an uninhabited area, just completely devoid of humans. Oh, well, there you go, right? Devoid of humans, devoid of humanity. That movie. Uh, this movie uh, tries to bridge that gap, but also suffers from similar problems. Uh, again, they go to the random uninhabited place of Gotham. Uh, to do battle and to cause some destruction. Um, there's an offhanded comment by Gordon to Batman uh, saying that he caused several million dollars worth of collateral damage. Um, and then all the problems you have at the end of the movie with uh, with the family and how they're 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 clearly trying there to mean something, but don't uh, contribute to the uh, to a coherent overall thematic um, story about how humanity is worth saving. So let me go back then to the previous iteration of the DC Universe, which is, of course, the Christopher Nolan 
um, universe. And it all kind of uh, comes together in, a, in The Dark Knight. No surprise there, right? That being such a great movie. And let me remind you all of the greatness of the fairy scene, right? In The Dark Knight, you have all this talk about how Gotham is so terrible, it's a cesspool of crime, and the Joker's going to come and just going to burn the whole place down. And then you have the fairy scene where the noble prisoner says, you know, I'm not going to be the one who's, who's going to take human lives. Um, I know the value uh, of human life. Uh, I, I see worth in, in all of this and tosses a detonator out of the window. But that to me, like, it, it, it boils down why these movies are failing so tremendously and why uh, the Nolan movies uh, succeeded in the ways that they did. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. It's really cool because the moment when ba- it's Batman versus Superman, where we see Ben Affleck holding the little girl, it's a little girl, right? Might be a little boy. I don't remember. Doesn't matter. But he's holding a child sort of protectively during the destruction at the end of Man of Steel. And it's set up that Batman is supposed to be the one who cares about little people, however fragile they are. And Superman mm-hmm. is the one who cares about big things and kind of has lost sight of the little people. And that that moment is really powerful and really cool and sets up this really cool expectation that they're going to be in conflict with each other. And then it doesn't really cash out in that movie. And in this movie, well, this movie, they just Jon Snow Superman and it's stupid where it's just like, oh, no, he was dead. and Now he's alive and he didn't care about anything special before. and He doesn't care about anything special now. Um I mean, I don't know. You you had some choice words about the relationship between Superman and Lois Lane, I think, uh, Mark. Uh, it's, uh, but maybe you didn't want to repeat them. <laughs> oh, no, it was, it was, it was more my, my my wife's uh, words, which is like like I wish I cared about this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is what, exactly. what she said. Uh, you know, the the they're supposed to feel all this emotional pathos for bringing him back, and you know, the power of love. Uh, stops uh, Superman from going, keep continuing on his blind rage and then restores his humanity and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it just fell flat, at least to me and, and, and my, my wife when watching yeah. it, uh, for all the reasons, basically, that we were just talking yeah. about. But uh, I don't know, that that's like, we should talk about that more, right? Bringing Superman back, um, the kind of the incoherence as to why bringing him back was important, why you need this symbol of hope. Really, they just needed someone strong to punch Steppenwolf, right? Well, they, they did a good job of solving the first problem of all de- Justice League stories, which is how do you temporarily take Superman out of the picture? Like, you have to do it all the time. And this is true of the old Justice League and Justice League United cartoons, which are great. The the follow-on to Batman the Animated Series and Superman Adventure, Batman Superman Adventures, Superman Animated Series, those were solid. And, and there are a lot of ways that you can get Superman out of the way for long enough for the problem to remain urgent and to not be uh, solvable within the time frame that it needs to be solved to give other people important jobs to do. And this one does a reasonable job of keeping Superman out of the action and then bringing him back at the end. But yeah, but this idea that like the unity, first of all, unity, the unity is like this supposed to be communism. It's supposed to be like, like a hippy dippy body snatchers. Everybody is going to be linked to the same hive mind kind of thing is what's implied by the name, the unity and the mother cubes and stuff. Um, and and why is the unity able to bring back Superman as a singular person, it, even it has power? The, the the symbolism is just all over the place, and and I guess that's what I'm sort of saying is that like uh, the the bringing back of Superman is all over the place, and and I don't quite. It's not that I don't know. It's almost like I need to give up that they know, like they don't know. They don't know why they need to bring Superman back. Right. And maybe they don't. Maybe the answer was that Superman didn't need to come back, but then they're like, no, you have to put Superman in this movie because Superman is important, which is fair enough. You have to deal with that constraint. But like, maybe they, they needed to do it without Superman this time. Maybe that's kind of the problem. I mean, it makes sense for Superman to fight one of the people from you know the new gods of Apocalypse and New Genesis because uh, he's very involved in that story, and it's very important. But... At the same time, it doesn't. It doesn't have much to do with the stakes of the world that are in play or him. Well, okay. So here's the thing: because like the death of the death and return of Superman is a big deal. It's an important story, and it's a uh, a lot of the best comic book movies have gotten as good as they are because not because of comic books being inherently a good 
basis for telling stories. It's more because there's so much comic books that you can sift through a lot of trial and error and find the ones that are good and work and base your story off of that. So you, Thor Ragnarok pulls pretty heavily from Planet Hulk and from some other good stories that we know are, go- are successful and cool and that took risks. And if they had failed, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. Whereas if something like Justice League ends, it fails, it's kind of a big problem for a lot of people in their lives. So, and not the end of the world, of course, but but it's like um, like the death and return of Superman is a huge story that they could have milked a lot more. And one of the things that happens in the death and return of Superman, again, other comic book people can correct me because they'll know better than I, but one of the things that happened is that Superman doesn't just sort of simply come back as Superman. He comes back as a series of Superman, as, a, as an assortment of different figures who all claim to be Superman and who have achieved their Superman status through different means. There's like a clone, there's a cyborg, there's a guy in a robot suit, there's like somebody who looks like him but might not be him. And it, it raises the question, who really is Superman? How do we know that he's come back? How do we know he's for real? And the idea that you're going to bring him back with an alien artifact and he's just going to very clearly be the same person and not be affected by the process. I mean, yeah, he gets a little bit disoriented at first before they Jennifer Connelly him down. Uh, sorry, just referencing the fact that it's like a two or three shots pulled directly from Ang Lee's Hulk and dropped in the middle of this movie. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm a little lost because Superman's a little lost, and I feel like they're a little lost with Superman also. Yeah, it's Henry not. Henry Cavill I mean, seems to be less lost, but I don't know. <laughs> He's not. Well, right. Like it's not clear. It's not totally clear the journey that he takes, right? Like that through the thing from being from being revived and like why he goes back, uh, you know, because it's totally an option for him to just say, "No, Amy Adams, I'm going to stay here on the farm with you," right? Like, uh, yeah. the, you know that that like. All those things, there's there's a lot of question begging in the in the like the arc, the kind of second act arc of um reviving and getting you know, getting Superman from like the the uh just revived um you know, sort of uh continuing where Zod left off to um uh, to the guy who shows up and and you know is is for truth and justice, uh, truth just truth and justice. Now, I mean, I went the American way was added later, right? Like during during a war or something like that. But <laughs> to, to, don't you think isn't that isn't that true? Um, I suspect that some, sounds someone yeah. someone would have to well actually me in the comments for that. But the the you know like that 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 is an important that's an important story. You know, I w- I was thinking not to just take a to drag us down a rat hole but here we go um the emperor diocletian no i'm teasing uh, um there was one good scene that i think throws into relief a lot of what mark was saying uh about um uh about the bystanders and the stakes in man of steel and it's where Lawrence fishburne as perry white right like s- sits with a person who is trapped under some rubble do you guys remember this scene yeah sure because i thought mm-hmm. that they were both gonna die right well and that's and that's actually that's the implication and it's that's not just the, somebody it's 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 the jimmy olsen analog who in this case is a woman and i forget exactly what first name they use oh, right okay. that's who it is it, yeah i think so oh got it okay i that that detail had had uh had slipped my mind. It's, but the, it's not the only detail that gets kind of dropped in the movie. Don't worry about it. But that it was a very, I mean, it was a very sort of powerful scene because the thing was like Lawrence Fishburne was not going to run away. And, you know, because because uh, Lawrence Fishburne was punching way below his weight uh, in this movie, he brought a like a humane poignancy to this where like without saying a lot, he sort of took her hand uh, through like a gap in the rubble um, you know, said almost nothing, but the look in his eyes said, I- "I'm going to choose to stay here and die with you rather than uh, flee flee to safety um, because you're trapped, and I'm not going to abandon you." Uh, you know, to 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 die alone. Um, you know, spoiler alert: I I don't think they die, uh, but uh, I don't think that that's how that one that one comes out. But right, that that sense. I mean, and this is like you know, this is the um, the thing about the kind of the destruction inflation, this, the kind of like the, the, I feel like the, the end of the world is just table stakes in a movie like this now. And it's, it's becoming, you know, it's becoming a little, a little tiresome, like just a, 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 uh, a kind of barrage of, of, 
destruction you know at least at least marvel is trying to sort of cope with the idea that like uh it's actually hard to rebuild all this stuff <laughs> right like you need uh you need michael keaton you know to rebuild all the uh all the, the from beetlejuice <laughs> or from, from multiplicity because he can clone himself right you oh need... no johnny dangerously you need to johnny dangerously to do it you need batman <laughs> You need you need lonely Batman. <laughs> that was that was fun. Like lonely, socially awkward Batman was a fun riff on Batman. Yeah. Uh, but you mean you mean you mean Michael Keaton, uh, municipal contractor, right? I do. Yeah. yeah. The Vulture. Got it from Spider-Man: Homecoming. Oh yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's it's true. It was totally ambiguous which one I was talking about. <laughs> Um, right, like they're they're trying to do this. I, I I don't know how DC is like dealing with this sort of important important world building aspect of it. It seems like the lens is a little more tightly focused on the team, um, uh, on the the league and its you know uh, internecine struggles and 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 things like this. But like the the and and this is the point at which I I get to trot out the the Slavoj Žižek. Um, saying that I love so much, which is that like the whole world dreams about being America and America dreams in its films about destruction so vast that it would lead to the loss of all of its privilege. And that's, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's become, it's become just sort of commonplace, uh, in, in these movies. And like, I, you know, I don't know, maybe my, my, my sense of, of like everyday existential dread is, is getting intermingled with this, but I I don't necessarily want uh, a metaphor for the hopelessness I feel uh, about the world right, right at the moment, you know? And, and uh, it's not um, when, when the movie says like hope at the end, you know, like it's, a little bit while uh, Amy Adams was writing her newspaper article, I was like, "Okay, like, let, end the movie. This is it, yep. right? Like, punch end the- it, punch it, <laughs> run the credits." <laughs> now, now th- this is a movie that has about three beginnings and about three endings as well, if you count some of the the after credits. Um, stuff right like the beginnings are uh the uh the superman cell phone fit interview right the um cool i like that scene and i wish that they'd gone back to it in some way right yeah what was that like the the whole i thought the whole arc of the movie was going to be you were going to come back to that and he was going to have something to say after his kind of enigmatic looking off into the distance and smiling that that summed up some kind of coherent message of of what the preceding two hours had been about merciful that it was only two hours by the way Mm. thanks snyder for that you know (laughs) but uh i wonder if he would have said something like you tell me it's your planet. <laughs> <laughs> like that would have been a good answer and would have informed an interesting movie that we didn't watch. Right. So <laughs> he's, uh, but, um, yeah. And the, the, then the, like the Leonard Cohen cover, uh, the, and the, and then the, the multiple endings, you know, with, um, Seeing, you know, the the broken down mansion that's going to get re uh, the sort of ball, the the banquet hall or whatever it is, ballroom that's going to be repurposed as the the headquarters. What's I mean, is there a name? I'm not a really all of justice. All of justice. Right. Okay. There it is. Let's (laughs) see. Meanwhile, at the hall of justice. There you go. (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, it was still just a hall, you know. (laughs) <laughs> and uh and then the the like the actual the one the one that I liked right actually the two after credit scenes I think were were belonged to a different better movie than uh different better movie than um the movie that we had seen right like Superman and the Flash racing 
are uh, that's that's fun, right? A yeah. brunch joke that is fun. <laughs> I approve of brunch jokes. I mean, the, the 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 Splash Superman Racing is a great example of something cool, really cool that is in other media that they've already tried and done and was cool then, and now they get to put it in a legit movie, which is awesome. Yeah. So that's perfect. I love that they included that. That was so great. And the the interaction between them was was sort of human and like non you know non bombastic and stuff and like you know I, I would have loved to, for for that sort of that sort of uh, rather than just kind of like scowling you know dourly at each other about uh, and you know philosophizing about the nature of duty or whatever. Um, I mean, I you know a lot of it was duty. Uh, the, uh, that, and then, and then the Lex Luthor bit at the end, which is like, never put a scene in your movie that points to an orthogonal movie that's better than the movie that you're doing, right? <laughs> like the, the, I want the Lex Luthor jailbreak movie. I'll bet it's, it's, you know, very, very cool and very, uh, very Ocean's Elevensy, you know? And, uh, I would like, I would like to see that. I, I mean, I felt bad for feeling this way, and I know that it's not legit a like, case where we're giving feedback that anyone would care about in terms of actually improving anything or doing anything, but just in terms of appreciation and analysis and what it meant to me, it really would have meant something to me if this movie had had some sort of Suicide Squad reference, <laughs> like something <laughs> – because Suicide Squad was – look, you may not think it was all that great, but Suicide Squad was only a year ago. Its soundtrack was the number one album on the Billboard charts for like more than a month. It was a universally confounded and talk, confounding and talked about phenomenon that arguably started off several major cultural trends that continue to this day, such as the investigation into the deeply deranged behavior of Hollywood celebrities in certain respects suicide squad was a big deal it was very much of the moment i felt like it felt special even though it was kind of total trash and i liked it it needed this was a world supposedly this movie takes place in the world that suicide squad took place in and I know it doesn't have to abide by the rules of Suicide Squad, which involve uh, a very elaborate series of military procedures that involve, like, bombs that have timers that can only be turned on by pushing buttons while you're standing next to them, which is kind of a problem for military technology. But no, no, no the point, like, they don't have real controls, things like that. The point being that, like... This was yes, I know in Marvel comic movies they'll have this problem and then they'll have this problem and this problem and we can't really have everybody reacting to every problem. We just sort of have to hand wave it away because otherwise we wouldn't be able to develop these individual characters in preparation for the big crossovers. Nobody would have a room of their own. Though Marvel does tend to help this a little bit by putting their characters in kind of different axes of interaction with the world. Like Ant-Man does not approach the same kind of problems that Thor does. And as such, they don't really interfere with each other they don't play with each other's space but like but 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 bruce wayne's motivation in this movie is that he needs to put together some sort of team to tackle this problem and he has, has a severe manpower shortage and we know that he knows the suicide squad exists we know he does and you know what i would say that the suicide squad might be better suited to solving the problem of this movie than they were for the last one because <laughs> <laughs> the last one they were the problem they caused the problem in the last movie but like but like you know and i'm sure maybe this is something they're saving for later when the joker has to like have a heartfelt conversation with batman about what side he's on or something um but yeah, but it's like there's not even a reference. Like, just throw me a freaking bone. Like, have Batman go to El Diablo and have El Diablo like flip him off and say like, you know, do a Wolverine. But the, but they can't do that because that was in X Men Days of Future Past. Actually, that was in X Men First Class. So there you go. Uh, when they try to recruit somebody from a different movie and he just tells them to go f themselves. Um, but yeah, something. Give me a give me a Randall Flag. Give me Amanda Waller. Is Bruce Wayne really not calling Amanda Waller on the phone? The freaking device is at Star Labs for Christ's sake. I don't. I, I that this these these worlds were too close to each other to not interact in some way, and I want them to be together because that's kind of the nature of these movies. You know, it's like it's like throughout all of the years where all these individual superhero movies were getting made, there was this sort of fantasy that we would get the kind of crossovers that we occasionally got in comic books. 
And then we started getting them, and they were great. And now it's like, oh, man, we live in a world where all things are possible, and you can actually get a big Infinity Wars movie. That's awesome. Right. That should be possible here, too. Why not? Right? Why? I thought we lived in a world where this where it was possible. Yeah, um, it is confusing, especially the lack of Harley Quinn, right, who was such a breakout character and is, uh, was and remains to be very popular. I feel like uh, they would have been able to afford El Diablo. But I guess they were throwing every dollar they had in the kitchen sink at this point. Yeah, but this movie cost $400 million to make. Yeah. It's like absurd. It's ridiculous. Okay. So, yeah, um, uh, Suicide Squad references lacking. But you know what we did get in terms of references to other superhero movies? Quite inexplicably, frankly, uh, music score quoting the old Batman theme and the old <laughs> Superman theme. Yes. To which I'm referring to, you know, da, 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 Danny Elfman theme, which he wrote for the Michael Keaton Batman movies, uh, which, by the way, Danny Elfman wrote the score for this movie. And even more confusing, though, is the quoting of the John Williams Superman theme. So on and so forth. The Batman theme is leaned on more heavily than the John Williams. The old Batman theme is leaned on more heavily than the old Superman movie. Well, yeah, um, so they're, both they're, I thought were really curious and confounding choices because they reminded us all of movies that are much better than this. I sir, I didn't even notice the Superman fanfare. That's how you know what I mean. And I feel like I should, being a musician. But I heard the Batman uh, music all over the place. Um, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. It's uh, it's a completely it's completely wrong that that uh, John Williams da, 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 Superman um, theme. It's it's not the right tone for this. Uh, it's not the right tone for this uh, sort of now, style of storytelling. I, I could be misremembering it, but I thought that it was being quoted in a minor key type of thing going on when Superman was in his post-resurrection rage. Oh, um, but. Uh, I mean, just to, to address the very basic points of continuity, right? Is that uh, you know, it you hear the music themes come back typically when you're trying to reinforce continuity. Um, I will remind us all of Superman Returns, right? Uh, Brian Singer's Superman, Superman Superman movie from about ten years ago, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe was in continuity with the Christopher Reeve movies, which used the John Williams. Uh, theme and and that movie reused that theme to reinforce the continuity. Um, I, I think what I'm saying is that these those bits of music have no place, really have no place in this movie at all. <laughs> By the way, I just had a moment of profound relief, which I did not expect to have, <laughs> and I just want to share this because I think it's good and important in the world to have things to feel good about. And you feel free to spoil this if you want. So when you just mentioned that Superman Returns was a Brian Singer movie. I had this, it felt like this weight lifted off of my shoulder because in my mind, for some reason, and I know it doesn't fit stylistically, I had been thinking of it these past few weeks as a Brett Ratner movie. And as such, I had been thinking about it as a movie that I was not allowed to watch anymore and had to hate. <laughs> and because of the, the, uh, the public revelations about Brett Ratner's behavior. Uh, I mean, if we're going to go there, Brian Singer has had plenty of allegations leveled. Oh, he has. Him. Oh, gosh, yeah, darn it. Yeah, I, I like the X-Men. God, darn freaking. All right, fine. There, there's everything, that way to get everyone and everything is terrible now, Pete. I hate to break. It. No, no, let's not reduce it like that because no, you don't no, get to no. cash yeah, out right, like yeah. that. That's yeah. the other thing about this movie is that, no, it's not that everything is terrible. There are specific things that are terrible. And you know what? If we say everything is terrible, then we start saying that it wouldn't be better. It wouldn't be worse if the whole thing was replaced by a hell's cake of caco demons and you know what it would be <laughs> so we should take some freaking responsibility for the things that are terrible that are specific <laughs> you know and yeah either fix them or recognize that they are problems at the very least that we don't know how to fix or can't but we don't we don't get to live with the hand waving of like everything's bad uh, I mean, we get to live with the hand waving of life in general is like a huge uh, whoa, 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 whoa. problem of yeah. chaos. I get, I get. We get, do we get to live with the hand waving of like the world is worth saving? Yeah, the world is worth saving. It's no, worth we saving. Don't. We need know. a reason. Like why? Like why is this? Especially because it's not real in these movies. Pretend world. Why is it worth saving? <laughs> like why? I don't understand. And that's the, there's space here. It's not like there's only the Marvel movies and no other way to do it. Like, you could actually try to make some sort of case for actually saving the world, which I kind of feel like none of these movies really do. <laughs> like, none of these superhero movies. I can, can you think of, of one where, like, a superhero movie where, like, the case is made 
to save the world that isn't dependent on the psychological journey of an individual person or, oh. or even like a small group of people like well yeah i mean yes but it's reflected in the psychological journey of uh, a group of people but it's a much larger thing and well, so I'm, what do you mean i'm speaking of the fifth element <laughs> I, meant a, I meant a superhero movie. I thought you were going to say Suicide Squad. What, in what sense? Standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> in what sense is uh, Fifth Element not a superhero movie? Right? It has a perfect being in it. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, I meant specifically. You know what I mean. But I know what you mean. Are you talking? Are we going to talk about Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets next? In what way is Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets not the best movie you've ever seen? <laughs> like, in the way that it wasn't the best movie that came out that weekend? Maybe? <laughs> yeah, perhaps in, perhaps in that respect. Um, yep. Yeah, no, when, 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 uh, when Ian Holm sort of leans in and, and she, she's like, why should I? Why should I save the world? Uh, and Ian Holm leans in and says, tell her, Corbin. <laughs> You know, and that's like, uh, you know, because because uh, love because uh, he uh, Corbin Dallas Multipass is in love with the, the, the perfect being. And, uh, you know, that's that's a good reason. The world the world has love in it. I mean, this doesn't, you know, like. Yeah, but that movie was made by a Frenchman. And they, they understand their emotions. <laughs> I mean, like Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. Harley Quinn would have like punctured some of the like the kind of the sanctimony about who's like flirting with Diana, right? Like that's uh, that would have been a, a kind of welcome tonal shift in in this movie, right? Like make it a little less austere. Uh, she would she would have definitely had some great uh, great moments with Momoa, right? Like, can you imagine the the oh yeah Aquaman Harley Quinn banter? You know? Oh, yeah, that would have been great. I, I hope that they do that in a future movie. So he, here's a movie for you. Would the movie would have been better or worse if it had been called Aquaman and Friends? <laughs> if there were no changes to it and it was just called Aquaman and Friends, that's it. I liked this movie. I enjoyed watching Justice League. I did. I did. But it's hard to talk about because you just want to focus so much on the things that miss. Here's the other funny thing. We haven't even touched on the character of The Flash who is like the Joss Whedon Hail Mary, it seems, to attempt to save this movie. Huh. Right? Am I, are, did you guys feel that way as well? That, With that his the, banter and his coming of ageness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely that like that. the Flash is the Buffy the Vampire Slayer character transposed into this movie to make it relatable, to put a human spin on it, to make, give character development and relationships, and to kind of make it sufferable yeah but it's so far i mean i don't know it's like i you compare it to the tom holland it's it's impossible not to sort of just i'm I'm not saying that there's only you know uh you know uh, dc and marvel right that there's only sort of two parties of superhero movies we could vote for a third party candidate go ahead throw your vote away but the um the uh it's hard not to compare it to the tom holland superman uh, uh, spider-man and um just how kind of how organic and like grounded in character uh that is and how it's given a, a chance to kind of grow develop and and um kind of get nurtured organically like it's just uh it's almost like <sighs> I don't know. It's it's almost like the the annoying kid being annoying because he's the annoying kid, and it's time to annoying kid some people rather than like they're being uh, a super organic way. I mean, I guess it's in, in you, that is accounted for by your description, which is that it's kind of shoehorned in as a way to kind of humanize and and um, not exactly deflate, but but sort of de de solemnize um, some of the proceedings. But yeah, I don't you know. To me, I, I found it not like uh, I found it annoying and not particularly, um, not particularly. Uh, I, I feel like the Harry Ma- the Hail Mary pass didn't connect for me. Is what I feel. I feel like I feel like it was done better in Live Free or Die Hard with <laughs> Long in the role of the Flash, <laughs> but. <laughs> Um, which I kind of, which I actually kind of mean, right? This I, this idea of adding a, a relatable younger character to an older, very, very, very well-known and established sort of characterization to try to move the focus a little bit outside of the center of gravity of this baroque and overdone, really overcooked uh, idea of humanity 
and in this case, it's gravelly voice Batman. Like it's not just Ben Affleck's problem. It's gravelly voice Batman. Gravelly voice Batman's got to go. It's time for gravelly voice Batman to go. He's not going to go, but he should. And and it's time for for Silver Age Batman with the blue cowl to come back because that's the Batman that I think does the best in the Justice League setting, in my opinion, where he can be the one who provides grappling hooks in key situations <laughs> or like breaks out of force fields and stuff. Um, but maybe maybe others disagree and, and insist on Batman maintaining this sort of dark character and not being the sort of gadget guy, which is what he becomes, at least in Super Friends, which I think is an underappreciated piece of source material for this, especially if they're making a Hall of Justice, which uh, would require adequate narration. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Do you guys like do you guys like blue and gray Batman at all? Or are you all about the dark Batman? Like when, you, when, I say, when I say blue and yeah, well, okay. When I say blue and gray Batman, uh, I mean I'm associating this with I guess Silver Age Batman, but it includes the idea of blue and gray Batman includes Adam West Batman as one of its manifestations. But it's a lighter-hearted Batman that is more uh, oriented around kind of like kinetic gadgetry and and more around kind of like chummy cheerfulness to a certain extent. And then, and it's more ch- ch- focused on children, I think, than the dark Batman of the, the say, like post Tim Burton, and also the comic books, like the post Frank Miller era. Although in Dark Knight Returns, he wears the blue and gray outfit. I think it's kind of ironic. Uh, hmm. But I, do you have a do you have a favorite? I used to have a blue and gray Batman action figure where you squeeze the legs and the hands would move. I uh, one of those old timey classic ones, the little ones. Uh, and I and so I have a certain fondness for blue and gray Batman, but I don't know if anyone else cares about blue and gray Batman. Hmm. I had, I mean, I was very devoted to the Adam West Batman show and, and to the yeah. movie. Um, anything with bat shark repellent, really, I was a big fan yeah. of. <laughs> That's pretty much it. So it has to, like, all, all the way over to that level of campy ridiculousness. Yeah, I mean, is, I... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I had a different. I mean, I had a different set of of after school cartoons, right? Like I was really a Disney a Disney afternoon kid, uh, yeah. and not really a superhero, uh, not really a superhero car- cartoon kid. So I have a slightly different, you know, take, uh, uh, set of uh, associations and nostalgias, right? Yeah, I mean, Mark, what do you think? Do you what do you I think like about this. Batman and Darkness? I, I I like that we can pick and choose, frankly. Between different uh, manifestations of Batman, right? You know, as I mentioned before, uh, and I think no to the surprise of no one, we all have a great affinity for the fairly dark portrayal of Batman in the Christopher Nolan movies. Um, but we like the camp aspect of uh, Adam West. Uh, we like the, the silliness, acknowledgement of the silliness of Batman in the Lego Batman movie. Oh yeah, as totally. well. Uh, so yeah, we shouldn't be uh, we, it, we shouldn't be so confined to say we only have we can choose, we only choose one Batman, only enjoy. One kind of Batman. I will say that in cinema, on the big screen, um, in, in like the most mainstream forms of entertainment, serious dark Batman has really taken over. But uh, uh, and I'm not really suggesting a return to the Joel Schumacher schlockiness of Batman and Robin, um, but something different. Uh, I would not be opposed to. And if Ben Affleck is listening right now, and we know he is. <laughs> Something new, Ben. Please give us a new Batman. I don't even know what happened to his Batman project, but uh, something, some sort of new riff, uh, even if it's an old riff brought back, would be great to see. And I think it would breathe some real life into the character uh, at this moment. Fair that's enough. my that's my that's my last piece of of hope and advice. That and also like uh, bring back rick ross and skrillex to make another hit single for your next movie because suicide squad was a watershed and needs to be acknowledged <laughs> as such <laughs> all right that has been the overthinking podcast uh thank you very much pete and mark and thank you for listening uh we'll be back next week until then if you need hope look up in the sky where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.